Good afternoon, everyone. Hello. Thank you. My name is Natalie Gosnell. I'm Assistant Professor of Physics, and on behalf of the Academic Events Committee, I'd like to welcome you to our Block 3 faculty lunch. Um, if you are interested in giving a faculty lunch for the next academic year, please let the committee know you are interested. There's a form on the Academic Events Committee website that you can fill out, because um, we're taking interest now for the next academic year. So today's speaker is Professor Dwana McKay. Dwana McKay is a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation and an assistant professor of sociology and indigenous studies in the race, ethnicity, and migration studies program here at Colorado College. Professor McKay holds a PhD in sociology and a graduate certificate in indigenous studies from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, an MS in sociology from Oklahoma State University, an MBA in management science from East Tennessee State University, and a BA in political science from the University of Central Oklahoma. Her work has been published in numerous scholarly journals, including Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, American Indian Quarterly, American Indian Culture and Research Journal, and the European Sociological Review. Professor McKay previously held an appointment as Secretary of Education for the Muscogee Creek Nation. So please help me in welcoming Professor McKay. It's so good to see so many amazing faces today. I love all of you, um, so many of my friends and colleagues here. Uh, before I dive into this talk, uh, I'd like to give, begin with a formal acknowledgement of the land on which we gather today. So, let's do that. Indeed. Related to Colorado College's mission of equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism, we must acknowledge that the land on which we learn, teach, work, live, and grow is the traditional and unceded territories of the Ute peoples. We also acknowledge that academic institutions like Colorado College were founded upon and continue to enact exclusions and erasures of indigenous peoples. And because so many of our classes extend beyond campus, we must also acknowledge that the beautiful and majestic geographic area currently known as Colorado, where so many of us hike, camp, ski, kayak, and explore, is in fact the homelands of more than 48 indigenous nations, including bands among the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Kiowa, Shoshone, Anishinaabe, Pueblo, Comanche, and Zuni peoples, in addition to the U peoples. Yet currently, Colorado is home to only two federally recognized tribes. It is important to recognize that native and indigenous people were forcibly displaced from these homelands and thousands massacred in pursuit of gold and in the establishment of Colorado as a state. I often hear that these are complicated histories. The histories are very simple, actually, just very difficult to hear. The insatiable greed for this land and all the resources contained therein manifested as racist conquests that justified the slaughtering of innocents and then rationalized these actions in the name of so-called civilization. For example, on November the 29th, 1864, in an area known as Sand Creek, which is near the present-day town of Eads, Colorado, approximately 675 U.S. militia attacked 
without provocation, a peaceful village of Cheyenne and Arapaho, killing approximately 165 women, children, and elderly members uh, where they were supposedly under the protection of the U.S. Army. Afterwards, their bodies were mutilated and displayed publicly in Denver for weeks. This is but one story of thousands that occurred throughout this continent in the establishment of the nation state to which we pledge ourselves. As children, we are taught that this was all in the name of freedom and justice and the progress of civilization. Pulling back the curtain of these so-called complicated histories, we can see the consequences of the justification for the killing, racial hatred, and destruction of the earth and its ecosystems and the continued false rationalization of it all. So consequently, we must also acknowledge that even after suffering centuries of sanctioned and intentional physical and cultural genocides and the continuous fa bad faith exhibited to us through broken legal agreements, including 370 treaties between sovereign indigenous nations and the US, indigenous people are still here. We still exist. We still enjoy our traditional cultures, sacred beliefs, and shared histories. We still work, vote, laugh, thrive, and contribute right here in Colorado Springs, as well as across Colorado, uh, the Southwest, and all of the US. We are the caretakers, protectors, and original people as designated by the creator for our homelands. These acknowledgments from me, you, NCC, demonstrates our commitment to beginning and to continuing the process of working to dismantle ongoing legacies of settler colonialism and revisionist histories. And to recognize the hundreds of indigenous nations, to recognize that the hundreds of indigenous nations and their citizens continue to resist, live, and uphold their sacred relationships to and across their lands. Thus, we necessarily pay our respect to the elders, the old ones, past, present, and those of the future who stewarded and will continue to steward this land through the generations. Finally, through these acknowledgments, we accept that the achievement of CC's mission of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and anti-racism requires more than the recognition that the land we occupy is stolen. It requires real and equitable partnership with the Ute peoples, CC indigenous community, and the indigenous communities of Colorado Springs. We are all interconnected, and I stand here in faith that we will unite in respectful, responsible, and reciprocal ways to continue this good and sacred work of partnership. Mado. Yeah, that's heavy, huh? Yeah, there we go. That's what it's supposed to feel like. That's what work feels like, right? Having to get to it. Hesche, estango. Duana McKay, Jajifkados, Jajifkados. Este Muskoga, Gi, Nogazagi Doez, Colorado College, Mahaya Doez, Ligabuxchi, Mado. I just said, hello, how are you? My name is Duana McKay. I'm Muskogee, my clan is Bear, and I'm a teacher at Colorado College. So welcome to my faculty talk titled, Navigating Indigenous Identity, and thank you for being here. 
So I thought it might, it might be helpful to give you a bit of background about me. I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation, the fifth largest federally recognized tribe located in the state of Oklahoma. But I'm also recognized as an active community member who was raised within the culture and traditions of my people. I identify singularly as Muscogee. I'm the mother of one human daughter, Dina, a dog, yes, I said dog, son, Oliver, and uh, with my partner, Francisco, I also enjoy two bonus children, Richard and Jessica, and two bonus grandchildren, Maddie and Mina. This is my third career. I previously worked in consumer finance for 13 years, and then in hunger relief, nonprofit hunger relief, for another 12 years. And to alleviate my dissatisfaction at my last academic job, I took a graduate sociology class called uh, American Pluralism. I suddenly understood the trajectory of my life through that class, and I fell madly in love with sociology. I know, we're crazy, right? So um, <laughs> I left that second career, then I might mention a great salary, uh, <laughs> to go back to grad school and pursue a master's of science and PhD in sociology. However, through the five years that it took me to achieve those degrees, I realized that I couldn't find myself or my people in the literature. I mean, I could apply the theories and concepts to the coll collective life experiences of other natives and myself and me, but we were not well represented in the sociological literature. So that became my driving motivation, to center indigenous peoples in the academic conversations around race, racism, and discrimination. So altogether, my research focuses on the sociology of social inequality. In one area of inquiry, my work examines uh, the social complexity and dynamics of contemporary indigenous identity. In another area of inquiry, I explore the reproduction of social inequality in the field of work and occupations. Um, in a final area of inquiry, I also participate in public sociology, the subdiscipline, public sociology to engage a wider non-academic audience. But as a critical theorist and indigenous scholar, my goal is to bring social and academic awareness to non-natives about the impacts of the racialization of and racism against native peoples. So today's talk focuses on the matrix of indigenous identity, as I call it, and how native folks navigate it. So first things first. Indigenous folk in the United States navigate and no negotiate complex amounts of social identity. Indigeneity involves racial, cultural, and uh, political identity criteria, which construct boundaries, and these boundaries serve to confuse our ability to define and identify indigeneity. Depending upon the context of identification, be it external, community, or self, natives may possess all, some, or none of the social constructs commonly used in their identity formation. Now, I, I know you heard what I just said. So indeed, very little consensus exists among or between native individuals and communities or within the academic literature or even throughout the centuries of federal Indian policy. We all continue to struggle with questions like, what constitutes indigeneity? How do we measure Indianness? How do we account for identity variations between reservation, non-reservation, urban, and rural living? Who truly possesses, performs, or holds American Indian identity? 
In other words, who is a real Indian today? So I have to do a, just a bit more of quick housekeeping here. Bear with me. It, this will take one minute. I promise. I timed it. Uh, passionate debate persists in academia over the most useful terms to describe indigenous peoples of what is currently known as the United States. I make no claim over which terms should be used, but offer the following thoughts. I work in the academy, but I live within my communities. Any terms other than what we call ourselves are racial terms imposed by colonizing forces. Indigenous nations, tribes, peoples are cultural and kinship and political and geographic entities. For the purpose of my research, I use the term uh, American Indian because of its usage by federal agencies. I use the term Indian because of its uses, because it is the legal term used within federal Indian policy, judicial review, and other regulatory language. And I often use the terms native and indigenous as my preferences. I apologize in advance for any distraction or messiness. But labels are the consequences of five centuries of colonial racism. I also ask you to wait until the end to ask questions. I understand this is complicated, complex, and almost unbelievable what I'm about to show you, but this is the reality of Native people's lives, and we navigate this stuff every single day. So please try to grapple with it for the next 40 minutes or so. Okay, guiding questions. So no single project can do uh, justice to the complexity of contemporary American Indian identity. Instead, my work centers on the inherent inequality and social injustice that resides in what I call the matrix of indigenous identity in the US. I look at the role of external forces on the social construction of the racialized Indian and the dynamic and ambiguous boundaries that define Indianness. I analyze the consequences for imposing this externally defined identity in relationship to society at large and its devastating impact within Native communities. Please note that this body of work has less to do with how Native people see themselves and more about how they navigate and adapt to the racial lens by which the dominant society sees and positions them. It also expresses, it also explores authenticity policing. It's important to note that racial boundary policing did not originate as an indigenous phenomenon. Dominant groups enjoy a long history of policing racial boundaries uh, to exclude those they deemed inferior. This study provides but one example, and it's somewhat differentiated because of the mercenary incessant, incessant legal regimes of federal Indian policy that used tactical exclusionary measures regarding Indian identity. And I apologize to any of my relatives here today who feel that I'm airing dirty laundry, but this is meant to center the responsibility back on settler colonialism and federal Indian policy and intervening in a decolonizing way. Because in the search for the origin of oppression, all roads lead to colonialism, as I tell my students. <laughs> Consequently, this work assumes that racialized discourse and appropriation of indigenous cultures exists and deeply impact the contemporary lives of natives. So this talk explores my findings of
the last 10 years through conversations with 698 people who represent 322 federally recognized tribes. <clears throat> so this is just basically letting you know how we're having to kind of organize my little graphics. I like, I like graphics. Organized hierarchies of social identities produce and maintain social inequality in American society. But as I mentioned before, American Indians are noticeably absent in much of the sociological scholarship about social identity and race and ethnicity. So in that spirit, I'd like to give you an overview of some just basic social constructs so that we're all on the same page here. <clears throat> Racial identity. So it's the categorization within a group that's socially identified by physical appearance. Of course, it's more than that. But that is the basics, a basis of it. So it's based on phenotype, and um, this is what Omi and Monant say. This is, I mean, it, it's, I've got all the, if you need me to prove this, I have all of the references that you need. Um, it, it's, uh, it requires an assumption of biological attributes or phenotype to identify who belongs in a particular group. And it's constructed within the context of society. Um, but through socialization, it becomes internalized. So ethnic identity adapted a little bit. I adapted a little bit so that we can understand it in, you know, view of native peoples. So, oh, sorry. Um, it's an internally claimed social identity. It's based on like commonalities, shared histories, language, that sort of thing. So, and there's a sense of belonging sometimes that can be felt. Um, it, you can claim it and, and groups pretty much validate whether you belong or not. So um, sometimes people claim an ethnic identity and yet they are not validated by a community. Okay, so this used to say legal identity, but I thought you might get confused with like um, being American. Of course, indigenous people in the United States are also Americans, so we grapple with all that too. Um, legal status is just basically dichotomized. Either you got it or you don't. Am I going right? Yep, okay. So, now that we've gotten there, I wanted to just talk about, um, take a few minutes to discuss my research framework. This, I know that you're like, get to the stuff, get to the stuff, but this is part of the talk. This is part of the teaching. This is part of the decolonizing. So everything I've done here is purposeful. Indigenous methodologies um, is uh, holistic. It encompasses the whole research process, not solely data collection or analysis. And my work is interdisciplinary, and it draws from the theoretical fields of race, ethnicity, critical race studies, critical feminist studies, legal studies, and indigenous studies. My approaches include the use of qualitative and or quantitative methods and the application of indigenous epistemology. Margaret Kovach states that we can know indigenous research through four decolonizing ethics. One, it lines up with indigenous values. Two, there's a pres the presence of community uh, accountability research. Three, it, uh, the research benefits the community. And four, the researcher does no harm. So natives are the experts of their own lives. 
In, con in contrast, the ideology of knowledge production within Eurocentric academic contexts that ascribes positional authority to Western research paradigms, indigenous approaches are relational, storied, and experiential rather than purely cognitive and human-centric. Indigenous people have the power, strength, and intelligence to develop culturally specific decolonization strategies for their own communities. So the methodology is fundamentally about relating to self, elders, ceremony, and one's academic life to bring greater consciousness to the place and politics of knowing, being, and researching. And it acknowledges the need for uh, reciprocal and respectful knowledge seeking, what you may call research and gathers that knowledge in relational holistic ways. This is what you may call data collection. Uh, and, me, and, and then there's also meaning making, what you may know as analysis. That should honor indigenous knowledges and value indigenous ideas. So my ethical aim is to share appropriate knowledge in a way that is decolonizing. I often enlist a panel of eight elders, all respected indigenous scholars and leaders, to read my findings and conclusions to keep me accountable to my ethical aims and to lend dependability in my research. My research framework also requires my active participation. I have to self-reflect and I have, to be, I have to show my positionality within my work. So that's what I've been doing for these last few slides. I've really been modeling an indigenous epistemology for you all. Okay. So I'm not going to spend much time here. I just kind of wanted you to uh, see this. Uh, methods are tricky for me, particularly because of the subject matter. I must gather data, write, analyze, and work in ways that non-natives, scholars, find acceptable, valid, and legitimate. And at the same time, maintain a holistic approach that serves to honor the process and the generosity of the people who speak with me. So we can uh, discuss my methodology more thoroughly during Q&A if you'd like. So let's get to it. First, I'd like to discuss contemporary racism that Native people face daily and my original theory of legitimized racism. We constantly hear about racism, discrimination, microaggressions, and prejudice against other marginalized groups. And that's all true, and it, that happens. And participants mentioned that they see it all the time too, and, and, they, and they're not dismissing those experiences. In fact, uh, I would say 98% of all of my, I wouldn't say, I know, 98% of all of my participants express real solidarity. Uh, but the lack of attention paid to Native experiences compounds the erasure already felt. And there's a real disconnect between race theory and overt racism toward natives. And it's painful for students, scholars, and just native people in general. Like, so the one I'd like to focus on here is colorblind racism. One of its central tenets is that white privilege and white people no longer rely upon name calling to maintain white privilege. This proves a difficult fit for Native Americans because we do currently face overt racist name calling and stereotyping. And so my, my theory of legitimized racism argues that overt racism becomes so socially invisible through the norms, systems, and institutions of society. Um, so to legitimize is to make legitimate, right? That is to justify, re reason, or rationalize as in accordance with accepted or established patterns and standards. That's what 
uh, Merriam-Webster says. So, uh, in other words, the institutions that shape social norms, those seen as social authorities, reproduce symbolic racial violence through legal structures, public education locations, consumer products, sports associations, and so on. Legitimized racism is deeply embedded in the very social character of the United States. Native people cope daily with this language, images, and behaviors without social recourse. It includes racial epithets such as redskin and squaw and stereotypical representations like Indian sports mascots. Moreover, over, uh, informal communication perpetuates racist meaning against natives with phrases like, don't be an Indian giver. <clears throat> or they're going off the reservation. The myth of cowboys versus Indians is alive and well in contemporary movies, songs, and literature. American children are socialized into playing Indian with Columbus Day celebrations, Halloween costumes, Thanksgiving reenactments. Dressing up to play Indian seems harmless to the public school educator. Uh, high school teams uh, with Indian mascots claim to be honoring Native people, culturally appropriating sacred objects like war bonnets for a fashion statement is considered innocent. Another important characteristic of legitimized racism is the resistance to recognizing these that these terms, images, and behaviors are racist at all. Empathy is not easily forthcoming because most people have participated in it. Groups who protest are charged with being subversive uh, and acting in their own interests and not for the good of society. So overt racism is made invisible through legitimization, but invisibility does not indicate absence. Rather, it indicates presence not easily perceptible, like the blowing wind is evidenced by the movement of the tree branches. People know the wind exists because it's of its effect upon our persons and environments. Indigenous peoples and indigenous people know that legitimized racism is real because we experience it in every single day in every space that we occupy. So during every single conversation, participants and I discuss typical stereotypes about natives and coping strategies are necessary in the face of patriotic devotion to the mythical benevolence of Columbia, uh, Columbus and while living with racialized stereotypes like the dirty squaw, the drunk, lazy, casino Indian, and the pervasiveness of red face. I found natives used both cognitive and behavioral coping strategies like holding people blameless and defending others and commiserating and sharing stories, giving gifts, uh, utilizing social media for awareness, that would be me too, um, uh, recalling survival uh, narratives and remembering the strength and courage of ancestors. So following are some, some slides I thought you might. If you're the whites, that I'm around, make Indian jokes. I've been called basket weaver, blanket Indian, blanket ass, skin, breed, which I don't let it bother me, let bother me you know, because I just look at that person that's doing the talking and the so-called name calling, and a lot of that shows ignorance the way I look at it. I laugh at it and, try, and go on and try not to let it deter me. 
Even today, some people I work with at the state will say stupid stuff. I remember a colleague talking about his neighbors are trashy people because they ain't nothing but no good Indians. And that upset me. I tell that person, look, there's a lot of no good white people too. (laughs) Yeah, we all own casinos, obviously. We're gamblers, drinkers, slackers. You know, I see that. But I see that in white white, black people. You know, it's not prevalent just to us. I'm sure we have our share, but we have our share of people that are educated and are productive and community-driven and care about politics and the whole bit. But we'll still get that. We'll still get that cigar stand ending on the cement, you know. That's what it is, but it's something you got to work through. Our ancestors went through worse. As I got into puberty, white boys seemed to have some kind of idea that I was wild and would be more willing to have sex with them. Boys would grab me and call me Pocahontas. They didn't treat other white girls on the street that way. And then Doris, Doris's story, Doris and I had a real conversation, and, and so, yeah. Columbus Day is especially hard for me because it's kind of the point of origin for genocide, you know? Columbus stands for all the colonizers that followed all the brutality that followed. I think about my family and how we've maintained our culture, but barely. Honestly, though, that day is just one in a long list of reminders about what happened to us. That's why you can't ever concentrate on the bad. You always have to go to the good. We're survivors, you know? I'm here because of my ancestors. We're survivors. Our language is still here, even though it's not strong, and it can still survive. We still have a chance to survive, and our culture still exists. I'm very proud that there are many accomplishments that a lot of our tribal members have had. And so I'm really proud to be a part of that because it makes me who I am. Columbus Day can't take that away from me, my kids, and my family. Celebrate all you want, America. We're still here. We survived. So I wanted to give you some... Like, um, thank you, Mado, Mado, for that. I want to give you some examples of what I'm talking about when I say legitimized racism. Here's some popular things. The Help was this huge movie and this huge book, and Mike and Molly was this, and, you know, Victoria's Secret and Urban Outfitters, and, you know, we've got ethnic fraud. We could put Andrea Smith up here. She's ethnic fraud. I, I know she's being taught, but you know what? That'd be like us teaching Rachel Dolezal, you know, so <laughs> rethink that, please. Um, uh, you know, these, these are some things, but, but this is really where it gets. These are everyday people, right? There isn't, like, of course, we got Gwen Stefani, and we got Drew Barrymore. Um, here, I should probably be doing this. We got Drew Barrymore and Gwen Stefani, who apologized. That was a video. But these are like every day. And do you see that these are people of color too, right? So it, it legitimized racism is so pervasive that we can participate in racist actions and not even realize that it's inherently racist. That's why legitimized racism, that theory is important and goes beyond racial formation, colorblind, systemic racism, colorblind racism, that sort of thing. But let me ask you, Do you know any of these people? This is where the rubber meets the road. The erasure of our contributions. Mary G. Ross is a Cherokee aerospace engineer. Joy Harjo is a Muscogee poet, musician, and the the poet laureate of the United States. Um, John Harrington. Uh, is a 
astronaut, Chickasaw astronaut, and aeronautical engineer. Diane Himatua is a Hopi federal judge. Jim Thorpe, Sack and Fox Olympian, he won two gold medals, played in three professional sports, and was the first president of what is now the NFL. I love this one. Thomas David Petit, Fond du Lac uh, Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Tribe. He's the inventor. Uh, he's an inventor in wireless communications. He created a way to extend the internet to your remote actuators or sensors. He's the one that helps you control the temperature in your home if you have one of those things, right? Okay. Um, and then, oh my gosh, Wes Studi. I have my picture with him. I didn't put it on here because I didn't want to seem vain. But um, Wes Studi is a Cherokee uh, actor, director, producer, and now Academy Award winner. Uh, and finally, this is, the, this is the saddest one of all. This is Maria Tallchief. She is Osage, and she is the United States first prima ballerina. And we don't know that. That's what legitimized racism does. So let's revisit some history. Thank you for letting me go through that. Let's revisit some history here. Uh, American Indians did not exist before the European invasion. No? Anybody? No? It was Oh, yeah, no, people were here, of course. <laughs> but the first inhabitants were heterogeneous groups. Uh, that were fluid and dynamic. They lived in hundreds of alliances with complex political structures, diverse languages, and sophisticated cultures. And without the concept of race, indigenous peoples held a subjective view of who belonged with no exclusionary hard boundaries. Uh, communities maintained their cohesion via ancestral ties, but also adopted people outside of the group. So contrary to the myth of the doctrine of discovery, uh, the entirety of the North American continent was not a vast wilderness without civilization when white colonizers arrived. Around the end of the 15th century, an estimated uh, 20 to 100 million citizens uh, of over 1,000 sovereign indigenous nations occupied the geographic area currently known as the United States. So for perspective, Europe had less than 50 million people at the same time. Racism began with contact. In the 15th and 16th centuries, colonizers used concepts like heathen and savage to impose a racial identity that became known as Indian and the racialized term tribe to indicate shared cultural similarities or geographic locations of these groups. Colonial powers used genocidal policies, economic deprivation, corporate violence, and eras of forced disenfranchisement, internment, displacement, and assimilation to oppressed natives. But their most effective tactic was racialization. Their most effective ta tactic was these, were these processes of identity construction, designation, and enforcement of a racialized inferior identity. The systematic colonial racialization of indigenous peoples into one monolithic group of Indian and the erasure of their independent governments, cultures, uh, and histories is reified by federal Indian policy. So one of the things that I want to talk about is why would federal Indian policy like be exclusionary? Well, they wanted to reduce and eventually terminate their financial responsibility to Indians. 
So consequently, the United States was the first authenticity police of Indianness. To ensure unremitted westward invasion, Congress forcibly removed and relocated and confined Indian tribes to reservations. Concerns soon escalated about expenses for providing subsistence rations and paying military personnel to ensure American Indians stayed within those uh, geographically ascribed borders. And seeking to limit contractual obligations by reducing the number of people to be covered within the agreements, the federal government applied increasingly restrictive boundaries around the race of Indian. Indigenous peoples are not a race, of course. Indigenous peoples are distinct sovereign polities. For example, Muscogees are very different from Tulalips. Racializing all people from the same continent as one race makes little sense. I mean, political systems, geographic locations, shared histories, and common languages matter. Uh, people from Germany are quite different from the people from Italy, on the continent of Europe. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> okay, good. Want to make sure you're still here. Uh, they would like say they didn't behave like natives, so they weren't natives anymore. And then if they did something like drink or something, they were like, oh, no, they are savages after all. Um, when I say phenotype, they put pencils through uh, uh, people's hair, and if the pencil fell through... That meant the hair was straight. If the pencil fell through, they were designated as Indian. If the pencil caught because the hair was curly, they were not Indian. They weren't white. They're black. Okay? So you had sisters, mothers, daughters, who some were designated as Indian, some were not. The biggest thing, though, is here. They made, the, they birthed this, this thing called, that I, I call, it's this, American Indian legal identity, where the re recognition of the individual Indian, the individual person had to happen, then there had to be a federal recognition, recognition of the tribe, and then tribal recognition of the individual Indian. Okay. Um, I know that this seems, you know, it's really interesting, and I know that it's hard for us to like get this in 45 minutes because I'm talking about 500 years of colonialism and my last 10 years of work, well, actually 12, in 45 minutes. But it's important for us to understand how authenticity policing comes about, right? It was the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act that firmly established the concept of federal recognition as the defining criteria for tribal legitimacy and blood quantum as the standard for tribal membership. After ratification of the IRA, only tri Indian tribes which are recognized are eligible to receive protections and services. And the Supreme Court has ruled that Congress possesses plenary power, plenary power, full and complete authority to limit, modify, or eliminate tribal rights. In other words, it may, quote, assist or destroy an Indian tribe as it sees fit, unquote. Just wanted to give you a little graphic here that shows that there's, to have American Indian legal identity, you have to be able to make it through this little matrix here, this little, like, uh, like you have to have an ancestor that was located if you, you weren't raised within the tribe or the nation. You have to have an ancestor listed on the Indian census roll or uh, tribal base roll that includes Indian blood degree. Or your ancestor was or is a member of 
the federally recognized tribe now, and this is through lineal descent, not like your auntie or your cousin. This has to be mother, father. And then you have to meet the tribal requirement of blood quantum percentage um, or proven lineal descent and other criteria as required. And one tribe requires you to live uh, within the national boundaries, within their nation's boundaries for a year before you get the CDIB card and everything. So here, these are mine. So the CDIB card, that's the front and back of it at the top. Let's see if I can do this. This front and back. And this is my old tribal membership card. Now I have a fancy little like picture on mine. It's better than the driver's license that you all have, so it's considered more legitimate. Um, but this is my old one. Um, but if you see in both of them, it says like degree of Indian blood. Like I think degree of Creek blood. So there is not a tribe that you can belong to that does not know what your blood quantum is. So all of the legally identified participants, when asked why natives must be enrolled in tribes, they express that uh, this legal identity acts as protection against further usurpation of tribal rights. Um, uh, Lily, this uh, Cheyenne woman, she really articulates it in this bittersweet justification to dish out, uh, sorry. She really uh, kind of says, well, look, um, It's the only, she says, she says, to dish out sovereignty, everything we are born with, everything we have a right to, without that it's gone, there would be nothing. But I think tribes are what is left. They are the what little bit we have left. They sit on what is left of where these people ended up, the land, and our sovereignty is executed through them. So I didn't think it would be right if I didn't give you kind of like a demographic overview of what we look like now. I'm happy to send in this to you. There's 573 federally recognized tribes, 326 reservations, and 150 of the 350 languages spoken in the United States are indigenous. But this is really the impact of exclusion. The number of people who self-identify as American Indian has sharply increased in the last 50 years. The Bureau of Indian Affairs estimates only 2.1 million people are actually enrolled members of 573 federally recognized tribes. According to these numbers, more than 63% of people who self-identify with the racial identity of American Indian do so without an official membership in a tribe. And contested means of being American Indian in the United States reinforce an unrelenting debate about indicators of authentic indigeneity. And since the real Indian trope developed within federal institutions, the policing of authentic indigeneity manifests as an expression of internalized oppression and an extension of legitimized racism. Whew, yeah. Sherman Alexie, who has apologized for his, what he's done and 
I understand that, but this is a, such a great quote. Indians were obsessed with authenticity. Colonized, genocided, exiled Indians formed their identity by questioning the identities of other Indians. Self-hating, self-doubting, Indians turned their tribes into nationalistic sects. But who could blame us, our madness? We are people exiled by, exiled by other exiles, by Puritans, pilgrims, Protestants, and all those other crazy white people thrown out of a crazier Europe. We who were once indigenous to this land must immigrate into its culture. Okay, so I'm gonna get to this right here. I wanna make sure you know what my findings were in this. And this continues. Out of everyone I've spoken to, 698 people, actually 699, but I didn't count them because they were. Everyone continues. This is a, these themes are so deeply embedded, I couldn't even, I just kept trying to mix it up, make it more interesting, make it, but this is what our reality is. We say that indigeneity is dynamically formed, challenged, resisted, and reformed within local, historical, and culturally specific social contexts. Blood quantum, we have this theme that blood quantum is protection, culture, and belonging. It's a metaphorical construction that refers to an ancestral heritage that's measured by degrees or fractions of blood inheritance. Like, you know, people say, I'm half I'm half Indian, I'm half, I'm half Muscogee, I'm, you know, I'm a quarter of this. I, you know, so that's what blood quantum is. And they look at these Indian cards, the reason I showed you mine, as pride, belonging, and responsibility. They are only issued to people who meet BIA and tribal standards for citizenship. This is really interesting here. Every participant knew and stated their blood quantum for me, even though I never asked or initiated the conversation about a person's blood quantum. Not once. Hello, how are you? Would you like to tell me a little bit about yourself? Hello, my name is Dewana McKay, and I am 7 8 Muscogee. Okay. 80% of all the people that I've talked with believe that blood ancestry is necessary. 22% of them wish they had more blood quantum. And most participants express consent to the oppressive nature of blood quantum because it establishes their authenticity and right to belong and tribal sovereignty. So it's like this self, it's a cycle. I'll read you this last, this is, it's easy for me because I'm full blood. I know how much I am, but for my son, it's like a part of me is trying to figure out. But you know, it's important because we are all intermingled. We aren't all full-blooded anymore. And for my son, it's going to be important to me for him to know how, know how much he is and what he is. The Indian cards, they represent the protection of tribal resources and autonomy. But it, they also function as like this cultural surrogate. It's like... I may not know all my culture, I may not actually live within my community, but I've got this card, you know? Um, and it varies by presence of, of other indicators of Indianness. So almost one third of the participants understood that Indian cards are racialized objects. And they all mentioned that no other race or ethnicity is required to provide legal proof of blood ancestry. 
I was 14 years old, and uh, when you got CDIB card, then you were full-blown Indian. That was like getting your social security card, your driver's license. It was your identity. When you got your, that card, you told people you were Indian, and you could show them that you were Indian. There was a certain amount of proud associated with it. It was documented. Our culture was really big, at least for my grandmother, that I marry Indian. So my husband had to work hard and get his Cherokee documented. Everybody's happy that he got a card. I said to her, she didn't think he was Indian until he got a card? <laughs> She said, exactly. I was the oldest grandchild for a long time, and there was a lot of pressure. I couldn't handle it hardly. Of course, my grandmother, our grandmother was the center of everything, and so it was very important to her, but not to me. So finally, I wanted to just kind of bring in this. This is something I'm really working on right now is this DNA. Uh, I, mean, I wanted to make sure that you know, kind of, yeah, that DNA stuff doesn't fly with Native folk. Just letting you know. All right, there we go. This is what I was trying to get to. This is the framework of indigenous identity in the United States. And I know it looks crazy. And you're like, what? How do, what? I told you it's complex and complicated. I made it as simple as possible. No. Okay, so this is the real Indian right here. You got to be ethnic, racial, and legal. Man, to be ethnic, you got to have community validation and community interaction. You know, if you are racial, that's okay, that's, but you got to be phenotypically identified to other natives and to non-natives, and you better have a high blood quantum. This doesn't really require much. Just some cards, blood quantum, and tribally enrolled. <laughs> I mean, to be legal. So this is what we are navigating and negotiating every single day. Every single day among one another, and yet we're in, we have legitimized racism against us as well, right? So, um, so that's interesting, but let me tell you what it really is. It's a bullseye. So this is the tr most authentic. In my work, I have found this is what everyone is saying. All the other stuff I told you, I'd like you to read my papers, but you can forget that for a moment. Let's just think about this. Through federal policies, through federal Indian policy and everything else, this is what you got to really be. A person who has a CDIB card plus a tribal card, a high degree of interaction with people. That means living in the community, attending cultural events, keeping traditional ways, being politically active, attending Indian church, and helping everybody. You gotta be not only full-blooded, which means four-fourths, you gotta be pure-blooded, like only one tribe. And you gotta be highly identifiable, and that depends on what, if you're living on the reservation, Navajos are like, you are not, you're mixed, we can tell. You're not, you're not a real Indian. I'm, please forgive me, uh, Navajo people, Dina, Dina people, um, but they know, they're, that, that's what I found and what they say. So this is the most authentic. So it's through this kind of idea of like creating and legitimizing these social interactions, Western dominance, I'm kind of trying to show you how the cycle continues. Power achieves racialization just as racialization achieves racist discourse. Racial discourse legitimates the racial order, reinforcing the social structures in place. So this is what my work so far has done. Is there's been theoretical advancement. Uh, my 
my, I've had a lot of great reaction to my theory of legitimized racism. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, um, among others, have really wanted to incorporate that into their work. Uh, I created the free framework of Indian identity you just saw, and that's so that we can kind of really conceptualize what that means. Um, and uh, there's generalizable processes with this, theoretical understandings that indicate universal implications. And so um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Here's my references. These are the things I've had published from this work. Uh, other, all my other references are about um, 50 pages, so I didn't put that on the slides. Um, if you need uh, those, I'm happy to send those to you. Uh, Mado and questions.